the book of Zechariah, he's had a vision, a radical vision, about uh, a menorah, a golden lampstand, and it's a self-fueling one. Right from the olive trees come pipes and the oils flowing right out of the tree and filling up the bowl, which then goes to the lampstand. And uh, he basically says it's a word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. And there's one of the most famous verses in all the Bible, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And so it's not by the multitude. It's not by the talent of one. It's by the spirit and the power of God. And God help us who have begun in the spirit to try to perfect it in the flesh. God help us if we try to do it in our own strength, in our own ability. We labor in vain who build it unless the Lord builds the house. And here he comes to Zerubbabel and he says in verse 7, Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain. And he shall bring forth the capstone, that final finished stone at the dedication service, with shouts of grace, grace to it. And so he makes it very clear here that to you it may look like a giant mountain. But when you look at God with Zerubbabel, it's not a mountain at all. It's actually a plain. And how we need to understand without God or without the Lord, everything is impossible. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. But yet with God, all things are possible. The Bible says we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So Zerubbabel to you, by yourself, individually, as you look at this heap of runs, as you look at this city of Jerusalem, it looks like a big giant dump. To you, that's what you see. But I see the finished product. I see before you, not just the foundation that looks like a pretty sorry foundation to you, there the Lord can look into the future and see that He Himself is going to come in human flesh and put His foot upon that place. And what looks like no great thing to you is actually an incredible great thing that I'm going to accomplish. The Lord has taught us. He said, with men this is impossible, Jesus said in Matthew 19, but with God all things are possible. In Mark 9, Jesus said, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Jesus there in the garden in Mark 14 prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. In Luke 18, Jesus says, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And there to Mary, the virgin who would give birth to Jesus, there the word of the Lord says, For with God nothing will be impossible. With God all things are possible. With God nothing is impossible. God will do it. In Psalms 37, it says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass, or He shall do it. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. God is going to do it. The Bible tells us in Philippians 4 to be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. That's what happens when you really have faith. You don't worry, but you trust and you rejoice. And let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 3, 
He says, now to him is exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. To him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or even think. The Bible makes it clear that we need to cast all our cares upon God because he cares for us. And Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will, not I may, not I'll try, but I will build my church. And so we have this incredible confidence that whatever the mountainous situation before us is, to God, it's a plain. And here he's saying now with God giving the power and the might of his spirit to Zerubbabel, even before Zerubbabel, that insurmountable obstacle, that impossible thing, has become very possible and quite easy actually with the power of God. And how we need to keep that always in focus. To understand that God is for us. Who can be against us? That God is on our side. That we shall not fear. And therefore, he says, when he brings that final capstone, he's going to be shouting, grace, grace. What is grace? Great is, grace is God's power. It's his strength. It's his ability. It's his doing. And so the Bible says we are saved by grace. What do we have? We have faith in that grace. Not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. So how are we saved? We are saved by believing in the goodness, the love, the power, the saving power of Jesus Christ. And as we trust in Him, we are saved by faith in His love, His mercy, His kindness, His goodness, His power. Not of ourselves, lest we would boast in ourselves. But it's just in His grace. So how do we get saved? By just falling upon His grace. I trust in you. The word, the root of grace is the word gift. It's a gift of God. How do we walk with the Lord a week into it, 10 years into it, 50 years? It's God's grace. And here He's saying it's going to be finished by grace. You got it started by grace. It was by the grace of God that they came back into the promised land after being exiled for 70 years. And it's by the grace of God that that final capstone is going to be there. And the Bible tells us in Ephesians 2 that throughout all the ages we will continue to praise the glory of God's infinite grace. We're, we're going to keep learning about His grace and just go, wow, your forgiveness, your mercy, your love, your kindness, your goodness, your power. It, it, it just keeps blowing my mind even though I've been living here in heaven for a, a billion years. I'm still just scratching the, the surface of the, the depths of the infiniteness of your grace. And so when he finally gets that final capstone, he's going to go, it was God. It was God. God did it. Now, this is a, a wonderful place to be. Because here's the ruble bull saying, you know, this foundation, it, it might as well not even be here because where are we going to get the stones? And even if we got the stones, where would we get the wood to start building the, the, the roof? Of, and even if we got the roof, where would we get the doors? How would we afford the windows? How would we afford... You, there was, it wasn't just one obstacle. It was just a series of obstacles. And even if you cross the, the boundary of one impossible thing, there were still ten more other impossible things right behind it. And so here he's looking at it going, even if we got the walls up, what good's that going to do? How are we going to get the roof? Even if we get the roof on, how are we going to? It's just sort of one thing after the next. So why even try to put down the first stones when I can give you ten reasons why this thing will never come to fruition? And that's the way it is. 
And so here, when he finally puts that capstone, he's going to go. It's God's grace. Now, as we study through the Bible, we see so many unique ways that God has provided. We looked at the one last week in Genesis 22 where a ram was caught in the thicket. <laughs> and there Abraham sacrificed and said, this is the provision of God. God can do that. And I said, go home and, and pray that as we're in our building situation, that God would provide, he would put into your hands, that God would bless you with that ram in the thicket that you could sacrifice it unto God like Abraham. That was the heart, that was my prayer this week. I get home and there, I had no idea that good old George W. Bush was gonna give me my ram this week. There's this check in this mail and I'm looking, man alive, look at this thing. Finally, having these kids is paying off. And uh, thank you, Lord, for that ram caught in the thicket. There it is. I, I didn't expect it. I could use it on 10 different other things. But you know what? This is, this is an answer to prayer from God. I, I love it where the Lord tells Peter, just go fishing. <laughs> And as you catch a fish, open it up, and there you'll find a coin in it. How many of you guys have been fishing? Okay, just, just about everybody. There's a few people who are too hot to raise their hand. I understand. You're not sure. You know, I got it. I understand. And, uh, but uh, how many of you guys have found a coin in a fish's mouth? Any, anyone? No, no, nobody did that. Or everybody said, oh, I shouldn't have raised my arm the first time. I don't know. It's God. It wasn't a coincidence. It wasn't good luck or good fortune. It was God. There's a, in, in Elijah's school, there was a, a prophet that died, and, and his wife was a widow, and she had kids that had all kinds of debt, and, and she comes to Elijah and says, my husband was in your prophet school, and now he's dead, and, and there's, you know, the creditors are coming. We're going to lose everything. And he said, go find every vessel you can possibly find. Borrow vessels, buy vessels, get every kind of vessel you can get and bring it into your house. And she got all kinds of vessels, filled up her house with vessels. And there he got some oil and he began to pour this fine oil. And he kept pouring it and pouring it and pouring it until all the vessels was filled up. And he says, this is all, you don't have any more vessels, go get some more. And he kept filling them up. And then she went and sold that oil and it was enough for her and her kids to live on from that point forward. Who would have thunk it? <laughs> Who would have thought? God's ways are beyond our ways. Now, God doesn't have to always work in the supernatural. God often works supernaturally within the natural. And, and, and it is just a supernatural, even though it looks like the natural. We see there in, in Acts chapter 10, where it, it tells us Cornelius that the angel says there's a memorial in heaven of all your great giving. And we know that there was a centurion that actually God touched this Roman centurion's heart. You got to realize, these guys hated the Jews. They despised their rebelliousness. But yet God touched this guy's heart, not just to the point that he could tolerate them, but that he loved them and he believed that the true and living God was the God of the Jews, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he completely funded, single-handedly, the building of their synagogue. You say, well, you know, he's a wealthy guy and he donated it. No, 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 no. You don't know about wealthy people. Believe me. This church does not survive on wealthy people. Even though there are wealthy people, the wealthy people give the least amount of money. That's why I guess they're wealthy. At least earth-wise, not heaven-wise. 
No. Believe me, it's, it's the move of God. It may look natural, but it was the hand and the power of God. So Zerubbabel is there going, well, how are you going to do there? We've got to have some wood. And there somebody brings some wood. But at the end of it, you see, he realizes it's the grace and the power of God. Look, if you would, over to 1 Chronicles 29 with me. 1 Chronicles 29. And this is where David gave and the leaders gave and then all the people gave. And, and David begins to pray to the God as he observed this thing. Now, it looked like a big fundraiser, maybe. David gets up and says, I've given, the leaders have given, now it's up to you guys, the people, to give. And, and yet, he knew, even though it, it looked like momentum was growing, he knew it was the hand of God. Look at the, it's 1 Chronicles 29, verse 10. Therefore God blessed the Lord before all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven and earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honors come from you and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it makes great and it gives strength to all. Verse 13, Now therefore, our God, we thank you and praise you Praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? So he's looking at it going, these guys are, are unbelievably generous in a way that I've not seen these guys generous before. And it was the grace of God. It was the hand of God. For all things come from you. And of your own, we have given to you. It was your grace that enabled us to tithe. It was your grace that was given us to be able to give these offerings to the temple. For we are aliens and pilgrims before you. And as were our fathers, our days on the earth are as a shadow and without hope. O Lord, our God, all this abundance, listen, this is interesting, that we have prepared to build you a house for your holy name. And he goes on. And so he says, it was us that prepared, it was us that gave it, but we also recognize it was you that enabled us with that heart, with that ability, with that mind, with the actual follow through. It was your grace. And so David here, in this project, like Zerubbabel, is shouting, grace, grace, to it. I want to look again. We looked at it briefly last week, and I want to look at some points in 2 Corinthians 8. And once again, really focus in on the grace of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, this is where Paul is letting them know about an incredible need in Jerusalem. They had a time of incredible poverty. And uh, this was an opportunity for the Gentile believers to bless the Jewish believers who had given them their Messiah, given them their teachers, given them the apostles. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he says, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you, here it is, listen, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1, the grace of God. There is a work of God's grace that fell, he says, upon the churches of Macedonia. Now, who were the churches of Macedonia? They were incredibly poor people. There was incredible trial. They were incredibly being persecuted. They had deep poverty, but in the midst of their deep poverty, they had this incredible abounding joy that they were, with their riches, they gave liberally. And he says in verse 3, For I bear witness according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with urgency that we'd receive the gift of the fellowship of the ministering by the will of God. So I urge Titus that as he began, now notice in verse 6 here, 1 
2 Corinthians 8. So I urge Titus that as he began, he would also, here it is, complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, and so these guys were growing Christians in Corinth. They had grown in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in diligence, in their love for, for us, the submission to the heart of the apostles. But he said that you now would also abound in this grace also. There's the grace of God, he says in verse 1. In verse 6, that he would complete that grace. In verse 7, that they would abound in this grace. There is just a work of God that he desires to do in every single person's heart. Where God is just not first, technically, as they make the tithe. Well, i got to give my first of my income to God. Here's the tithe. That's great that you technically give that tithe from the first of your increase to the Lord. But it would happen more than that. That there would be this grace of God, that it would be worship, that it would be joy, that it would be incredible faith. And then when it comes time for an offering, it's the same thing, that there's just this overwhelming love for God, love for His people, love for His church, and within hilarity, joy, you're just giving unto God and that thing that's in need at that, at that moment. Look on, if you would, at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8. He says, I speak not by commandment. I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. The Macedonians were incredibly poor. They gave what they could. It was insignificant compared to the rich Corinthians. But he says, for you know, here it is, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says that in John 1, that Jesus would come and we would behold his grace. Grace upon grace, it says in John 1, we would see. That we would be overwhelmed with the grace of God and that God would reveal the fullness of himself. His entire self. How would it be revealed? In the grace of God. And here we see that grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, heaven was his, throne of glory, no pain, no sorrow, no suffering, yet for your sakes you became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And so we see that overwhelming heart of Jesus Christ making others rich. And then go over to 2 Corinthians 9 if you would. There in verse 6. But this I say, he who spares only will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And here it is in verse 7 now of 2 Corinthians 9. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, or as the grace of God overwhelms him. Not grudgingly or of necessity. And I just want to stop and make that point again. That although where we're at in the Word is where we're at, just like Zerubbabel, he was before a building project, so we're before a building project. And just like with Zerubbabel, it's a mountain before him, it's a mountain before us. We're at a point right now in these next few weeks that things got to come together and come together in a hurry, and it's great. And I am not speaking of necessity. You're saying there's no need, there is a need, but I'm not speaking of necessity. I know that God wants every one of us to be overwhelmed with the grace of God. I feel like this is sort of the final lesson as we've learned to love God's people in a way we haven't before, love God's church in the way we haven't before, to become unified in a way we haven't been before, to be stretched in a way we haven't been before. That there's still, this is just one step in the series of millions of steps that God has for us as a church. That God wants your life to be overwhelmed. Like he said Earlier, I didn't read it in 2 Corinthians 8, he says, they gave in such a way that they first gave themselves unto us, 
unto the Lord in a new and a fresh way, and then financially, that there just would be this work of God's grace. Yeah, it would show in the tithes, it would show in the offerings, but it would be more than that. It would be purely a work of God's grace. That we would all be just amazed in the grace of God. And then the next thing, whether it's giving ourselves to prayer or giving ourselves to one another sacrificially in whatever way, that we've learned to walk in this grace also. As you have learned to be have the grace of God in a faith, in a diligence towards the love of the saints, that there'd be this incredible new work of God's grace in your life, that you'd be overwhelmed. And so I know if, if God has to rain manna out of heaven, he'll do it. God will provide. I have no doubt whatsoever that we're going to put the final capstone saying, grace, grace, God's going to do it. And whatever we do have or we don't have. Paul says, I've learned to abase and I've learned to abound. We may be abased when we get in the building. We may abound. Either way, God's going to make it all things sufficient for us there. But I'm not speaking of necessity. I'm speaking of the necessity of God's grace touching your life. Notice what he goes on to say there in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 9. For God loves cheerful giver, hilarious giver. For God is able, what? To make, here it is, all grace abound towards you. That you having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. As it's written, he dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. For may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, supply and multiply the seed you have sown, increase the fruits of your righteousness, while you've been enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. So the increase of our righteousness, the thanksgiving through us, but it's all to God, because why? It was his grace that gave us that seed. I praise God this week. God gave me seed that I can sow. That God's giving us seeds that we might sow. Why? It's the abundance of His grace that He will make all things sufficient. It says in Proverbs, "Is a man who gives out and never has, uh, never has the need." There's another man that holds to himself and he's always in need. There's that work of God's grace, of, as he says in Philippians 4, of giving and receiving. He says, now that you have met this need, I know God is going to meet your need according to his riches and glory. And, and so, again, I, I know that God's going to do it. But at the same time, I know that this is the last call, if you would. This is the last opportunity that God, who wants in this season to enrich our lives, to change our lives, our prayer from the number one get-go, you know, well, years ago, you know, two or three years ago when we started this project, was God change us. Make us a different people. That when we go into that building, we are a people, just soldiers. That we have been enriched in the grace, whether it's in the area of giving, whether it's in the area of prayer, not just token prayer, but seeking the face of God like we do Sunday night in the prayer meetings. A grace of God in learning the Word of God, a grace of God in teaching the Word of God, a grace of God in evangelism, that God would, would trim the fat, if you would, from us and make us a prepared people for the work that He has for us. The harvest is plentiful. There's such an incredible need in the world around us. And God wants to use us in a mighty way for that need. Well, going back in Zechariah, so when it's done, you are going to know it was by God. It may have been somebody who 
paid for the wood, but it was the grace of God that moved their hearts and the wood was available and there it came and there it was installed and there it was done. But you know it was God and his ability working supernaturally or working supernaturally in the natural. Either way, you're going to know and everybody's going to sense that it was God who completed this thing. And in verse 8, he goes on to say in Zechariah 4, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands shall also finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. you got to realize at this point that Zerubbabel, although he may be the governor, he doesn't look like anything special. <laughs> He's just another poor guy living in the trash dump of Jerusalem at the time. And so even this project they're building is not going to be some beautiful building that they're going to come and go, whoa, this is amazing. And so here's Zerubbabel, this really average looking guy, even though he's the governor, a governor of what? A dump. Even though he's in charge, he's in charge of what? A feeble project that's barely moving forward. People didn't have that, that respect. Have you, have you ever noticed that? When whatever is normal, it, it, you just don't appreciate it. It's, it doesn't matter how good it is. You, you, know, you know how it is. You, you grow up in your home and you know your wife makes these incredible meals and, and, and the kids are going, oh, not that again. I'm so sick of steak. Why can't we have spaghetti like everybody else, you know? What happened just a good old-fashioned peanut butter and jelly sandwich? Oh, you know. And then they get off on their own and they realize, oh man, they come home and visit, oh mom, I love your cooking. I've always said you're the best cook in the world, you know. <laughs> no, actually, you complained about it for about 17 of the 18 years. In, in the same way, it, it doesn't matter how great our worship is. To us, it's regular. <laughs> it doesn't matter how great the leadership of the church, to us, it's regular. It doesn't matter how wonderful. I mean, we'll get into our new building like you buy a new car, and at first it'll go, woo, this is awesome, this is great. And then it'll just be, you know, this dumb old piece of junk, you know, we drive around. You know. Remember the first six months you owned it? Oh, man, I get to go drive my new car. Oh, it's so exciting. And then, you know, after that, it's like, ah, this dumb car, I don't eat in it, and I'll throw your trash down, I don't care, you know. It's, once it becomes regular, we just lose that ability, understanding. But yet, they're looking at Zerubbabel saying, ah, you know, he's a governor of nothing. And, and they didn't have the sight that God had of Zerubbabel. Turn back just one page, if you would, over to Haggai. And, and, and remember what God says about this guy, Zerubbabel. Looking there at verse 20. And again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying... So here's the word of the Lord, the very end of the book of Haggai, in verse 21 now. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of the kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and the riders shall come down, every one of the sword of his brother. And in verse 23, in that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shatil, like a signet ring. You're like the ring of a king that marks his identity. And I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. So God did not look at this guy's Zerubbabel as just some average Joe that was insignificant, didn't matter, although everybody else was looking at him that way. He was a mighty man. He was a faithful man in the eyes of God. 
And he said, when they see that finished stone being laid, they're going to realize that Zerubbabel is an incredible special man, not just to me, but to them, and they're going to see it. And in verse 10, back in Zechariah 4, for who has despised the day of small things? It's a rhetorical question we all have. Here's Zerubbabel is going, oh great, I'm a governor of a burnt down city and, and here we can't even barely get a foundation laid. Now this thing is set there for 14 years. And, and, and here we've been in the land 18 years. Nothing's moving forward and it's really impossible. It's a time of a famine. It was a time of drought. It was a time of incredibly high taxes from the king. It was a time of attack. And it didn't look like things were going to change. Year after year, the famine was there. Year after year, the drought was there. Year after year, the king's taxes were there. Year after year, the people hated them more and more. They were attacked more and more. And he's saying, nothing in the future, nothing in the, ec in the economic system, nothing in the political situation is changing that would cause things to be able to move forward with the building project of the temple and, and how much more the rest of the city. It was a very discouraging thing. And here he's coming back and saying, don't despise these times of struggle. Don't despise the days when you're looking at the city leveled and looking like a heap of runs. Don't despise that little thing that you're doing right now. For these seven, referring to the eyes of the Lord, rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. And so he's saying, Zerubbabel, when, when God is looking, and there you are with this plumb line, and that's the level of the day, a string with the metal chunk at the bottom. When God sees you out there and, and you're out there, here you are in his mind, in God's mind, you're this awesome governor, you're this incredible man who's ever lived upon the face of the earth, and he sees you out there doing this little insignificant thing. There you are, you just stacked one stone on the other and you're trying to get it just straight and trying to get it all right, and, and here you are, you spent a whole day and you got four bricks done, and you know, what's that compared to the thousands of drip bricks that need to be laid and all the great work that has to be done? This is insignificant. God is saying, you know what? In my eyes, I look to, to and fro throughout the earth, and nothing rejoices my heart more than that thing that seems so simple, so insignificant to you. In my heart, in my mind, as I look at it, it's absolutely incredible. You know, the, the way man's mind works is so opposite sometimes, the way God's minds work. And his mind is that don't despise the day of small things. God has something grand to do, great to do. But first you have to be faithful in the little before he can give you more. You know, you look at a little tiny dead seed. You look at this little dead seed and you say, oh man, this is just a little piece of trash. It's, it's insignificant. It's not worth anything. But we know better, don't we? We buy the little package and it has the beautiful flower on the front of it and we open it up. We don't see a beautiful flower inside. We look at a bunch of little tiny dead things and it's like, man, I paid that much money for this little tiny package of dead things. We, we know better, don't we? Because we take that little dead thing and we, and we put it in the ground and, you know, science can tell you how it happens, but they can't really tell you how it's accomplished. And all of a sudden that dead thing becomes alive and all of a sudden you have this beautiful plant that's growing and flourishing and then comes these beautiful flowers from that little tiny insignificant thing. Or you want to just stand and look at awe at the giant oak, but to realize this little tiny acorn <laughs> seems so impossible, really, that such a thing could come from this tiny thing. But you've got to remember, even the biggest giant of a man 
was once a baby in his mother's arms. A handful of disciples in the upper room was all it was needed to spread the gospel throughout the world. And so we don't want to despise the day when we have the mop in the hand and, you know, mopping that little square place of ground, changing that diaper, teaching a handful of little five-year-old kids that don't seem to be very interested in anything but eating the crayons. You know, if you could go in time and you say, wow, here's Billy Graham, a man who's been awesomely used by the Lord, and now you're able to go back in time, and there you are, and the little Billy Graham is there in your kindergarten class. Would your heart be different? Look at this, man, I have a, a chance to instill the love of God's Word, and, and, and think about it. Somewhere along the line, some little insignificant person in an insignificant setting told Billy Graham about the Lord and how he needed to come to Christ. And now that little tiny hands, those little tiny knees bent, said, Jesus, forgive me of my sin and come into my heart. What rewards that person's going to have in heaven? And somewhere along the line, Billy saw in someone a love and a belief and a trust in God's word that was stilled in his heart. The reality is, is that what may seem insignificant to you is rejoicing the heart of God because he can see how powerful it is, but he needed somebody who would not see the insignificant as insignificant, but see it as significant because God sees it as significant. And right now, Zerubbabel, you would like to be the governor of this incredible giant uh, empire or whatever, but the reality is, is to me, these days with you, with your little plumb line trying to put 10 square bricks down before the end of the day, in your lifetime, as I look at it, that's going to give you the greatest reward. <laughs> that's going to, in my eyes, those are the most precious things you've ever done on this earth. Not as he would later be the governor of a vast metropolis and a, and a great country again, no. It was back in the little days. I remember... Years back, I was asked to teach a Bible study at San Diego State. And, and uh, the first night, four people showed up. Now, I had just got through teaching a Bible study the year before at another college uh, of several hundreds of kids. It was quite a revival that happened. It was just an incredible time. And this is the person who knew me, asked me to, to do this at San Diego State. And and I thought, okay, you know, and, and we got enough signatures to be a club there on, on, on campus. And I thought, man, it's only time till this thing booms and, and grows. And, and there, you know, after about three weeks, there are a lot of nights, one person, two people, three people, never more than four. And, and I thought, you know, well, obviously God's not in this. Let's, let's uh, move on, you know. And uh, the Lord put his hand on me and said, you're not going anywhere. And I taught that entire year. I mean, it would not be an uncommon sight to be there 20 minutes, nobody's still there. Me and my wife were there waiting, and finally one person would show up, and I would lead worship and teach a Bible study to that one person. And did that that whole year. I mean, we had beach parties with all four of us sometimes. They'd bring a friend, you know. We, we, we went, we did trips, we did all kinds of stuff with that little handful of people. I, I put my whole being into it as if it were a thousand people. I thought, oh, I'm so glad that year's over. And God says, you're doing it again next year. But next year, it was about five or six people that started coming. It was, it was, it was amazing growth. 
And again, I mean, it wouldn't be uncommon to have one person show up, and that was it. And then God said, you're going to do it again. And the next year, I mean, I'm just dying. And, and God said, you're going to do it again. And the next year, we had about seven people. But then on the fourth year, it finally busted out. And there was times we had ten people there. <laughs> and God said, and in that fourth year, I didn't mind. The first three years, I died a thousand deaths. Every Monday night, I just sort of depressed. Every Monday morning, I'd wake up going, oh... And I'd have friends go, oh, who was at my other Bible study? Hundreds of people said, oh, man, we're going to come out there and, and, and be a part of your Bible study. Like, you know, it's okay. Um, don't know if there'll be room. And, uh, <laughs> but, you know, by the fourth year, I didn't care. And, and God spoke to me. And he said, you know, Brian, you're, you're a good Bible teacher, and, and, and that's something that you're gifted with. But you weren't a minister. And I had to bring you down to one person that you would not just teach, but you would minister to them. And every person that you have ministered to, they themselves will become a minister. And it's amazing out of those handful of people in those four years, how many now are pastors and missionaries and over the, their Sunday school at their churches. And I'm in touch with a, a number of them. It's just amazing the work that God did in those group of people. But in my heart, I, I realized, man, don't despise the day of small beginnings. How precious it is in the eyes of God whose eyes are going to and fro throughout the earth. Anybody's willing to get up and give their testimony in front of a thousand people. But are you willing at a bus stop to give your full testimony to one person? The reality is it's in the small things that God gives to bless. It's that little boy who says, here's my bread and my fish. I mean, the first look at it is like, are you dumb, kid? There's 5,000 men plus women and children. What, I mean, what good is that? You can't even feed the 12 disciples. Jesus could horse that down in one second. What, what, what good is that here? But see, that little bit, the Lord took it and he blessed it. And it was enough to spread far beyond what the mind could imagine. David showing up with his little slingshot. What good is that with a giant who has a javelin and a spear and a sword and a, a trained warrior? But yet by faith, that little slingshot and that little boy is enough. The widow, Elijah, comes and says, Hey, give me a little water in the time of a drought. And, and she goes, she starts to get it. And he said, Hey, while you're there, give me a little bit of bread also. And she turns around and says, Look, I have a little bit of flour to make one more cake. Me and my son are going to half it. We're going to eat it. We're going to drink a little bit of water. And then we're going to die. There's no more food, no more water. And Elijah says, well said, go do what you said, but give to me first. That must have been a very hard thing for Elijah, but it was signifying putting the Lord first. And as she did that for three years, that little bit of bread and that little bit of water and the oil never ran out. Shamgar, God, it was a time when Israel was being oppressed and, and Shamgar was just a, a, a guy who, who had an ox and, and he had a goad in his hand. One end it was a sharp point, the other end it was a hook point. And it says that with that ox goad he delivered Israel because he went and there 600 men he killed with that ox goad and the slavery that Israel was in was released. What's in your hand? Well it's insignificant, not in the hands of God. Shamgar, give your ox goad into the hands of God. In the hands of God, that one stick was enough to deliver the entire nation. 
Moses, what's in your hand? It's a staff. By the word of the Lord, throw it down. What is it now? It's a serpent. Pick it back up. It's a staff. In the hands of God, it's not just a, a regular old shepherd's staff. In the hands of God, it's a thing that's going to be your calling card to the children of Israel that I am with you and that I am there to deliver them. The reality is, is what may seem small in your hands, that little tiny Bible story in the Sunday school class, or that little gesture of, here, you know, let me spend a moment and talk with you or pray with you or buy you a Coke. Those little things God can use in a huge way to change the world around us. And so we need to not despise the day of small beginnings because God and his power is going to accomplish far more than we can ever imagine if we lean upon his empowering grace. We're finishing up here this morning in verse 11. Then I answered and said to him, Well, what are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and at its left? And I further answered and said to him, Well, what are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacle of the two gold pipes from which the golden olive drains? Then he answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? He just asked the question. You know, Maybe he's, maybe he's saying it to him. I've been thinking about it this week. And, and maybe he's saying to him, Use your brain a little bit. Think. I mean, really concentrate and, and really just have an open spirit and, and let God speak it to you himself. But there's just sometimes we just don't get it. You guys ever watch Wheel of Fortune? I, I, I've watched that from time to time. You know, I mean, there are times there's like two blanks, a bunch of letters, and I still can't get it. I'm just, what with that? I just don't get it. My mind just cannot go there. And so here he's looking at it going, branches, trees. No, I still don't get it. I, I have no idea. And then he said, well, these are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. Now, I do not believe Zachariah understood even that. And as a matter of fact, it's really not revealed what it means in the fullness of it until the book of Revelation. In Revelation 11.4, I'll let you study that out. But there's two witnesses, and it, and, it, and it actually quotes this very verse and says that these two olive trees, these two guys here, it says, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth in Revelation 11.4. And these guys are radical dudes because they are basically telling the world to repent. The world hates them. God allows them to have fire come out of their mouth and consume people. They're just radically powerful dudes. Now, one of them for sure we know is Elijah. We're going to get there in the book of Malachi, the last two verses of the Old Testament, as a matter of fact, clearly tell us it's Elijah. And if you compare it with the, the quotes in the, in the Gospels, John the Baptist was the first forerunner before the first coming of Christ, but then actually Elijah himself is going to come before the second coming of Christ. And, and here he's saying there's another witness. Now, who is that? Here it seems, as we look at Haggai and look at the passage here, that it's Zerubbabel. That Zerubbabel possibly is that other witness. Now, there's a lot of speculation. Some says it's Enoch. Remember, there's a guy in the book of Genesis says he walked with God and he was not. So if you look at it, there's two guys in the Bible who never died. Elijah was caught up in a fiery chariot and Enoch, who walked with God and just sort of stepped into the spiritual realm, lived there ever since. But in Hebrews, there's an interesting verse that says it's appointed every man to die once, and then comes judgment. So if you think about it, there's two guys who have never died, Elijah and Enoch. And so in the tribulation period, as they come out of heaven, their witnesses there, they do die. 
And so then it would sort of, you know, make that uh, a possibility that everybody now has died. So some think Enoch. But yet if you look at the miracles, they're very much, a section of them are very much like Elijah. The other type of miracles they do are very much like Moses. And remember in the Mount of Transfiguration, two guys appeared before Jesus, Moses and Elijah. So some think it's Moses and Elijah will be the two witnesses. And again, there's a possibility there. But as I look at this passage, and there is that other theory that says it's Zerubbabel. And uh, the reality is, if you don't know this answer, you can't go to heaven. No. Actually, it doesn't matter at all who the second guy is. We're going to be in heaven observing the whole thing anyway. But it is an interesting point here in verse 14. It says, these are the two anointed ones. That term there, anointed ones in the Hebrew, literally means sons of the oil. Or inferring to, these are the two guys that the oil is just flowing through, man. And I love that. Because in the meaning here, and this is the way I believe Zechariah would have taken it, he's referring to Joshua the high priest we looked at in chapter 3. And then he's looking at Zerubbabel, the governor, or the, the king, if you would. So through the priesthood and through the king. And Jesus came, he was the king and the priest who brought salvation. But also it's, it's through the two that the oil is flowing. And you know, I think the, the real picture here, if you would, is for every one of us. That we would be the people that the oil flows through. That we would be these people just sanctified, set apart for the master's use. And that God through us can just flow the, the fruit of his spirit. That oil of his spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the gentleness, the self-control. Jesus came and the oil flowed through Jesus. Jesus says, you call me master, you call me Lord, and so I am. But if I, being your master and Lord, wash your feet, happy are you, blessed are you, if you wash one another's feet. In other words, if you become the servant of servants. And God bless you if in God's point of view from heaven, you are an olive tree. There you are. The oil's just dripping from you onto those two-year-olds. The oil's dripping from you onto those six-year-olds. The oil's dripping from you onto those high schoolers. The oil's dripping from you onto the non-saved of your workplace and your witnessing and sharing the gospel. Whatever your gift is that you are exercising it, whatever, how small it may seem, nobody else knows about it. But yet in the eyes of God, as his eyes go to and fro throughout the earth, his heart is glad to see you with that little crayon in your hand. Or that guitar at the old folks' home. Or that one little track that you hand it to that 13-year-old at the bus stop. God rejoices in those days of small beginnings. And if you're faithful with a little, God will give you more. And someday you may be in front of a thousand people preaching the gospel, but it won't rejoice God's heart more than it did in the days of those small beginnings when the oil flowed and it was sweet. There was a purity in heart. You didn't care what anybody else thought. You didn't care that anybody else knew about it. You did it because you loved God and you loved the people around you. And God's spirit just flowed through your life. I do pray that it's not just two olive trees that the pipes are coming out of flowing right into Calvary, San Diego, but there's a whole forest that every one of us, and I believe that's what God desires, and I believe this is the last lesson to be learned before we move into the next building, that God wants us to make every single one of us people full of his grace in every area, in faith, in diligence, in a love for the saints, and the gift of giving as well.
and more than that, that we would totally give ourselves unto God and then unto one another, that the oil of God's Spirit would flow through us to heal, to strengthen, to bring joy, to bring gladness, to bring blessing, to bring healing, that God would use our lives, that we would be one of those people that the oil flows through. Amen.